So welcome to another episode of Platform 63. My name is KG. It still hasn't changed since the last time you saw me. We hope you're enjoying the podcast because that's really important. But more importantly, we'd love for you to comment. Tell your friends to tell their friends to tell their friends, especially if they're entrepreneurs and they want to learn from entrepreneurs who've actually walked the journey. Feel free to click the bottom right here if you're watching the video uh, for subscription as well. So in 1994, I don't know where you were in 1994, but I know I was a child. Okay, there's a business that came into South Africa and since then has grown in leaps and bounds. And the entrepreneur behind this journey is here sitting with us to talk to us about that journey. But more importantly, you and I know how difficult it is to raise finance as a startup, to uh, even once you're going actually to finance that, that journey. And so part of the conversation we're going to have is around that. But before we go there, I want you and I to go back in history, talk a little bit about his journey and how he became who he is now and what he thinks informed that journey. Richard, the CEO of Cash Converters, Richard Makaiba. Uh, is joining us this morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time you're watching or listening. Richard, welcome to Platform 63. Thank you very much, KG. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Fantastic opportunity. So looking forward to the discussion. You and I both. And I want to start at the beginning. I always like going back to sure. sort of where it all starts. Um, for anybody who hasn't read up about you or, or heard you in other interviews, give us a little bit of background pre-94, so professionally and personally sure. as well. Okay. So I'll start, uh, start, in fact, where I was born. I was born in Cape Town. I'm born red Cape Townian. Uh, I joke now that I'm living in exile in Johannesburg. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of swam upstream. Uh, most folk are going from Johannesburg to Cape Town, and uh, my business journey took me to, to Joburg. Yeah. I actually came up here in 1998 90, uh, after we'd started the, 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 the business down in Cape Town, and the idea was really just for a uh, five-year project, and we're still here after 20-odd years. Yeah, like. long, long past five years now. <laughs> long past five years. <laughs> So, uh, so born and bred in Cape Town. I was educated there. I went to UCT. Uh, I joke as well that I'm a bit, a bit of a, a poor student because it took me longer than the average three years to get uh, get my BCom. Uh, but I've always uh, been interested in business. I grew up in a small business family. My dad was the first one in our family to get a tertiary education. He became a CA. And uh, he had a small uh, chartered accountancy practice and he had many small businesses as clients. And I suppose that's really where it all started um, because I used to go into the office in the, on Saturdays and stamp pieces of paper in those days when I was a kid thinking I'm actually doing some work. And then as I got older, I got uh, involved in working uh, on weekends in the different businesses. And then when I was at Varsity, I was working when I wasn't studying in, in different businesses that he was invested in uh, in the context of his uh, of his clients. So the interesting part of this whole exercise and what I've learned through the through building a business is that I'm not very good at many things. But hmm. yep, but businesses require um, the analogy I sometimes use is building a puzzle. You've got to have a bunch of different pieces in the right place to make the picture come out. And uh, as an example in his in his world, he was a very good accountant, a very good in ad finance and admin and very good in background and particularly bad with people and particularly bad in the front end of a business. So one of the businesses he was involved in was uh, was a hardware store down in Cape Town. And, uh, and the hardware store was really successful. The guy who, who was the front end chap was very good at selling locks and, and keys and all that type of stuff, but was terribly bad at doing the finance and admin and making sure the creditors are paid in time and the rent's paid and the lights and water's paid. Uh, and so the two of them made a really good combination. He did the back-end work. He wouldn't know how to sell a lock if, it, if his life <laughs> depended on it. 
but uh, but his partner equally w- wouldn't do the finance and admin properly. So mm-hmm. in that way, the two of them were very complementary, and we got all the pieces of the puzzle in place. And I I was I was sort of um, almost learned that through osmosis, um, and it and it was interesting for me to realize that many people don't actually even consider that and are mm. not aware of that as a requirement in a business. So, uh, so yes, so I ended up uh, finishing up at UCT. I came up to Joburg in the, in the uh, mid-80s and started working for one of the large mining houses. I actually was uh, originally started out in the IT industry, IT and, compu- and, uh, and um, commerce. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine from, from UCT gave me a call one day uh, he'd finished doing a uh, BCom uh, CA, and he had a practice in Midrand. And every now and again, he'd give me a call and say, "You know, is this business for sale? Would you be interested?" A jacket making factory, a transport business, a this, that, the next thing. And one day, he called up and he said, uh, "You won't believe it, but I've just come across a pawnbroking business based in Australia. Does this interest you at all?" I said, "Pete, of course, yes. Everybody aspires to be a pawnbroker, <laughs> like not." <laughs> you know, <laughs> who would want to go into that industry? But he said, come along and have a look at this video I've got. Uh, and uh, Brian Cummings, the founder of Cash Converters International, had put a promotional video out together. In the old days, in fact, it was the height of technology because it was VHS and not beta tapes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went to Pete's place one night and watched this 15-minute video, and I thought, you know, this thing, this thing may well be have legs. It makes a lot of sense. It's a business founded on taking people's product that they don't really want anymore and and reconditioning it and putting it in an environment where other people would want it. Mm. Um, the context here, it was late 1993. Uh, South Africa was, was effectively going to become a, a booming country. Our first uh, um, democratic election was, was already scheduled, 27th of April 1994. I remember that date really well because we signed our license with Cash Converters uh, International on the 1st of April uh, 1994. Oh, wow. So April Fool's Day is a really good day for us. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out pretty well over the years. And it just seemed to me intuitively that it would make sense and work well in South Africa. At that stage, cash converters had 100 odd stores in Australia and a handful in the UK. Mm. Anyway, long story short, I uh, got on a plane with a, one of my partners and flew to Perth one Thursday afternoon, met Brian Cummings, had a look at a bunch of stores in Perth and flew back on the Monday. And effectively got around the table with my partners and said, "We've got to do this. This this would really work really well in South Africa." So uh, so that's where it started. I then plucked up the courage to phone my mother in Cape Town <laughs> and tell her I was going to become a pawnbroker from being sort of middle management wow. in a public listed company. And and she burst into tears and said, "Oh my God, the family sort of ended up back where we started uh, 150 years ago." And the context. So you took the whole family back. That's what <laughs> <laughs> context behind that is that uh, my grandfather on my father's side uh, got to South Africa in 1897 um, and he was effectively literate, he uh, knew how to count, but he couldn't speak English. Uh, Macaiber is, is originally Lebanese, so Arabic speaking and had a bit of French. Um, and long story short, ended up in a little town called Barclay East in the Eastern Cape, where he started a general dealer. And over the years, brought his brothers out uh, to South Africa as well. And Makaiba Brothers is still operating today, 120 odd years later, with one of my cousins. So, uh, so it was a small business. It was uh, it was effectively a general dealer, and it sold everything and and, and the like. And 
Yes, and my mother thought that we'd actually ended up back where we started a hundred years ago. So that was the the, the, the beginning of the of the business. We uh, we signed on the first of April, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I resigned from the large corporate and flew to Perth and went training for sure three months or so, and then came back and we opened the first store in Paro in uh, in Cape Town in. September, October, nineteen ninety four. I want us to go there. So, yeah. nineteen ninety four. Obviously, the country is opening up. Um, a very exciting time, but also a very unstable time for the country. Those f- that first year, first year or two. Um, any sort of highlight or standout moments that re- you, you either thought mm, I'm reconsidering <laughs> this, or this was well, a really good idea. I think I think with any entrepreneur, you you need to recognize that um, it's going to be tough. Uh, I sometimes think entrepreneurs are, are, are bizarre people because you take on what other people wouldn't and you you, you really need to be tenacious. Uh, you can imagine now, uh, clearly we're 20-odd years down the line, this is a national brand, it's an international brand, but it's now a national brand and a household name in South Africa, and it's become quite acceptable. But when I started out, uh, landlords wouldn't talk to us. Who would want a second-hand dealer, pawnbroker, or micro lender in their in their shopping, their fancy shopping centre? Mm. Banks wouldn't talk to us. That nobody would want to lend money to us. Uh, and so every at every sort of uh, question that you asked, the answer was generally no. And I think the learning out of that is if you, as an interp- as an entrepreneur, if you are absolutely a hundred percent sure that your business is your business and you will build it, you're going to have many doors shut in your in your face. And you're going to have people say no more often than yes. And you've just got to be tenacious. You've just got to say, listen, guys, that's the wrong answer. Uh, maybe you weren't listening to what I was saying. So, so there's, a, there's a, a range of, of, of uh, experiences that come out of that. So, uh, in fact, uh, our first store in, in, in Cape Town. That's the one in Paro. That's the one in, Cape, in Paro. In fact, it's still operating today, not oh. in the same shopping centre, just in the shopping centre next door. So... 25-odd years later. Um, one of the guys at one of the large uh, agencies gave us effectively a break. I think what they did is they had a, uh, a shop in their shopping centre that uh, nobody wanted to let. We took it. And I remember in those days, it cost us 28,000 rand a month rental. And uh, when we opened up our first store, we had 10,000 rands worth of stock on the floor. Jesus. So don't really know how we managed to pay the rent. Uh, but yes, it's just take it one day at a time. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think one of the issues that most entrepreneurs lament, and I, myself included, um, is how how to raise capital at that time. Like you're saying, for you guys, mm. the, the banks weren't um, sort of the established financial yes. uh, channels that are out yeah. there uh, aren't always forthcoming or helpful. No, they're, in that sense. they're generally not, and and I suppose one could also also appreciate it. Mm. You know, you have this uh, guy walking into your bank and saying, please lend me some money for this hairbraid scheme that I haven't proved. I've got a dream. <laughs> I have a dream, yes, there we go. So, I, so, so it's not easy, but again, it's in the context of how much belief you have in yourself and the idea that, you, that you're wanting to pursue. Uh, the first guidance I would probably say suggest is that you, you've, if, if you're trying to get somebody else to put their money into your business, you need to put your own money in. Some skin in the game. You've got to have skin in the game. It makes the investors and whoever else, the third parties you're talking to, feel a lot more comfortable. And it doesn't have to be a lot because clearly you don't have a lot if you're starting out. Um, but it needs to be something. So so we all chipped together. We started out, I think, as five or six partners. We all chipped some money together. And in fact, we managed to convince one of the large uh, banks uh, to fund us for half of, the, uh, half of the setup of the first store. 
So um, that was also an exercise. We, we, we literally wore our shoes thin mm. uh, going from one bank to the next until we found somebody who would listen to us. And to a large degree, so it's, so it's you need some skin in the game and then you've got to put a story or a, a, a vision, effectively a business plan together and, and go and sell that. Okay. Um, you know, when you were initially telling us your background, one of the things that I loved was the fact that you grew up within a business environment. Mm. And I, I always want our conversations to, to carry that element, mm. right, the personal part. How much of that experience prepared you for where you are now? Obviously, you're running a national business now, yes. so it's, it's a lot different to what that was. But how do you, how, from a psychology perspective and just what to expect, how much do you think that contributed to your journey so far? I think... I think it had a significant foundational benefit to me because I, you know, business wasn't foreign to me. Mm. It was something that was spoken about around the table. Um, I had cousins and uncles and aunts in other businesses. My dad was in business, um, and it was something that I was, I was probably destined to do. My wife jokes that I take instruction very poorly, and so I probably couldn't better, work for someone better suited to give instruction. <laughs> yes. Um, and and I and so my, my nature I suppose to some degree is one uh, that that lends itself to it. Uh, I like the challenge. I like uh, I like um, the excitement, the energy, the drive. The you know also I sometimes joke that I, I lack uh, uh, um, ambition because I've had the same job for twenty five years. <laughs> but the reality is the job has changed all the time. I can imagine. So I, you know I, I started out by our view and, and our business is a franchising business. So so we our my business is distinct from the cash converter franchisee's business is somewhat different. I'm running a franchise operation and uh, and what we needed to do is we needed to make sure that the actual um, retail operation worked in South Africa. So mm -hmm. our strategy for the development of the business was that I would, as I was the CEO, I was going to run that business for at least two years in store so that I knew exactly what was going to happen and how to, to effectively Make this cake. So, if you if you think of a franchise operation as a uh, as a recipe for success, mm. I needed to understand what ingredients I needed in the recipe and how to go about baking this cake. And so, that was so a, for the model not to be theoretic, absolutely, really absolutely, gone into market and test it. because it was incumbent on us if we were going to sell franchises to third parties. I needed to knew I needed to know how the business worked. Well, was it always the strategy from the get go though to to yes, build the franchise it was. model? It was. Um, Cash Converters internationally is a franchise okay. business. Uh, we franchise the second-hand dealing, pawnbroking, and micro-lending concept at franchisee level. Okay. So it is. Having said that, if you look to the uh, Australian uh, business, which I think is now 160-plus stores in Australia, uh, probably 60 of them are corporate-owned and the balance franchised. The UK network is now just under 250 stores. And the vast majority of them are franchised, but there are some corporate stores as well. And in our network, what we've done over the years is we've, we're just under 100 stores. We own five of them ourselves. And part of the rationale for that, besides the business has been profitable, is that we do two things in those stores. We train our new franchisees. So, so again, the recipe on how to bake the cake, it can't just be theoretical. Mm. It needs to be practical as well because our business is... is is not unique per se in the, in, the, in the three different pillars of it, but there are very few businesses that I know of worldwide that have combined the three different businesses in cash converters under one umbrella and under one brand. So we generally end up with, with uh, uh, franchisees that start the journey with us knowing absolutely nothing about the industry or our business 
specifically. So that whole training program is really important. So that's why we use the stores. And then particularly over the last five-odd years, five, seven years, as digitization has come in, uh, we use it for research and development and uh, new products and or services that we bring into the organization. So as an example, uh, cash converters, we give people cash, people come in, they sell us kit, we provide them with folding money on the cash side of things, they're taking loans, it's cash again, so it's instant cash. But uh, a good while ago, uh, we realized that um, as the loans were getting bigger and bigger and we were uh, requiring to move more cash through the business, there was a security issue both in the store and to our customers. Um, so we've done a JV effectively with uh, with FNB where we've taken their e-wallet uh, card, branded it a Cashies card, and real-time online off our point-of-sale system, we're able to uh, give you, should you come in and uh, uh, require cash from us, rather than folding money, put the money onto a Cashies card, and you can go and draw that money out the uh, ATM instantaneously or oh. use it as a debit card anywhere in the country. Now, um, to to create the functionality on an IT platform to do that is quite complex, first of all. And then when you roll it out into your network, you've got to have some type of environment where you've piloted first. Mm. You don't want to go and uh, switch it on for all of the 100 stores in the network and then suddenly it doesn't work. So we use our co- corporate stores to do exactly that. So we'll pilot that idea into the corporate network and then once we've got rid of all the bugs and the like we stick it into the franchise uh, system i mean 27 years is a long time to be in business for anybody right Mm -hmm. um and uh obviously noting this particular change digitization and sort of the impact it's had on your business and your sector um what have been some of the other lessons because i can imagine there's been a lot of changes in in the environment and internally as well for yes, the business, yes. having started out as yeah. five partners, has yeah. that changed? Yeah. Um, so yes, what informed that? So so oh, lots of things have changed over this journey. We we started out uh, uh, effectively bringing postnet into the country at the same time. So we were do, we were doing postnet and cash converters at the same time. Uh, we listed the postnet. That call must have been a difficult call to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was From just one board, board broker <laughs> to becoming a postman. <laughs> Uh, and, and we ran both businesses under one group, yeah. uh, effectively the idea being that they were franchise operations, both of them. Um, we had an opportunity to list it in the early 2000s, and we did so. Myself and my current partner now effectively sold out at PostNet at that point in time, and then we took the cash converter business uh, uh, from there. And we've done a bunch of other things in the franchising industry. Uh, at some point in time, we owned the multi-serve shoe cobbling business, uh, we bought that out of liquidation, re-established the business and unsold it later on. We also created the first social franchise in the country called Sport for All. Okay. Um, and we've been in and out of a whole bunch of things. So franchising is really, and retail, retail non-food, I'm not brave enough to get into the food business. Retail non-food is probably our specialization. And I suppose through this whole journey, a couple of thoughts uh, are coming to mind that, first of all, you can't do everything yourself. It's just not impossible. You have to, to start with. So when I opened that first store, I literally did everything myself. So we, you know, you'd be there in the morning, you'd work the whole day, and you'd leave the last person in the evening. Um, but if you want to build anything in, uh, of scale, recognize that you can't do it yourself. You just don't have enough capacity. And also, you, I suppose to a large degree, the first thing you need to recognize is where your weaknesses, because that's the piece of the puzzle that you need to get other people into in in 
into your organization to support you on that pro in that process. Can I can I push you? Sure. On, well, not yeah. push you, but yeah. just just pause us on that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially if you were you come from a technical background, so you're really good at what it is that you do. Yeah. You then decide you're going to start a business around yeah. it. There are so many blind spots that we're not always aware of. Mm. Was how did you? Um, I mean, that level of awareness for yourself, and I suppose for your partners as well. How how did that process play out? How did you become aware of what it is that you thought were your strengths and were not? So. Um, Again, I suppose to a certain degree, I'm fortunate in my in, in the context of my original partner that's with me still today after 27 years, we have vastly together. So we've known each other for a 40-year journey, yeah. both private, personally, or f uh, uh, friend-wise, as well as in business. Um, and and it became evident when we were at Varsity what his skills were. In fact, we were on a whole range of different committees and things like that, and we used to run side businesses doing this, that, and the next thing. And I was kind of the front-end guy, and Pete was uh, really... Is, is extremely good at what I'm not good at. So as an example, he's, he's, uh, he's a finance and admin guy, so he understands the numbers much better than I do, and he's very good at modeling new business concepts, which mm. is something that I can do if I need to, but I'd prefer not to. So so what he's got a bunch of pieces in the puzzle of cash converters that he looks after, and I've got a bunch of pieces in the puzzle of cash converters that I looked after. But through this journey, what has become apparent when you, when you partner with people and you partner with everybody, I'm not talking about just the limited definition of partnership, partnership in, yeah. from a legal point of view, uh, but everybody that you interact with while you're building this business effectively you're partnering with. Um, the, the concept that we've built over a period of time is that when, when I am going to get together with a, with a partner over a long period of time, I'm actually looking for a set of common values. So uh, in the cash converter business, and it, we have a set of values that we that are sacrosanct to us. So we consider anybody that we bring in, whether it's a franchisee or an employee or whatever, that they need to be um, they need to share those values with us. And the values, just as an example, are passion, professionalism, integrity, respect, and collaboration. So we reflect everything against those five values, and we require people to be what we refer to as value set compliant. So we need to have those common values amongst us to take on this journey because the reality of life is that, that things are not going to go according to plan because they, they sometimes do but most often don't. <laughs> Who thought of COVID last year? It was not on my plan. In my When I did my business plan for 2020, I didn't have COVID in there in January. <laughs> so, uh, so things change. And, and through the pressures of business, if you do have that common value set, then you can navigate that process. But what you need on top of that is a set of complementary skills. So going back to maybe just expand it a little bit to our exco, I'm no good at marketing. It's just just it's just not a skill set of mine. But when you build a national retail brand, you need marketing as a piece in your puzzle to build that. So you go out and you go and find the best person that can market your brand for you. When clearly, <laughs> when you've got capacity and scale and resources to do this, it wasn't from uh, when we started out. The first ad that I took out was a was a uh, ad in the smalls in the Cape Argus, and it cost seventy two rand or something like that. <laughs> and probably it wasn't all that effective either because I'm not very good at marketing. Yeah. Um, but as you build the scale of the business, and you and and this is another avenue in the context of funding a business. Um, long years ago, I realised again that that part of the process is you you need a coach to help you in these things. Um, you know, if you take a, an Olympic athlete, they have coaches. Why should business people not have coaches? So I've had many mentors during the, the course of my, uh, my, uh, my journey in, in business, and it may well be 
another um, uh, tip that could come out of this process is that you need to find yourself somebody who's traveled the journey before you and and literally uh, soak up everything that, that they can give you. And one of the, one of the guys that I that I, uh, I was chatting to was saying one day is get your customers to fund your business. And I said, Dim, what do you mean by getting your customers to fund your business? He says, make sure your business is profitable because from profit you can grow. So if you make 100 Rand this year, the concept being is you leave it in the business and you use that 100 Rand retained income for next year. If next year you make another 100 Rand, you've suddenly got double your amount of equity in the business. But the precursor to that is that your business model needs to be profitable and it, and it, and it needs to make profit. So, so the, the, the other way of making, making or raising money is making sure your business is profitable. I want us to talk about COVID and the impact that it's had on your business and some of um, sort of the changes that you had to make. I suspect going digital was definitely a, a big <laughs> part of that yes. in, in such a tactile <laughs> business, right? Yeah. Let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Uh, one of the things that's happened in the, over the last, I say, five years has been government um, heralding entrepreneurship as something that we really need to get on yeah. onto in South Africa. Do, do we, and I, this is a very subjective converse, uh, question, right? Do you think that we've got the right understanding of what entrepreneurship truly is um, holistically speaking, as a country, I suppose, and is there enough support uh, for entrepreneurs? And is there enough of uh, six thousand questions in one? And is there enough of an entrepreneurial spirit um, in terms of sort of the people who are going into these entrepreneurial um, roles? So the short answer is no. Okay. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> you heard it. <laughs> the short answer is no. We know we're in this journey. Yeah. In my humble opinion, I think uh, I think we culturally speaking, do not have a culture of entrepreneurship and supporting entrepreneurs. Uh, and the reality is that if you look at all the things we need to do in this country, it, it must rank up there in the top three priorities of what needs to happen. Uh, government can't employ people. Government consumes. They do not produce. They add very little value in the context of they do not uh, pay taxes. Mm. Uh, government collects taxes from the likes of the entrepreneurs in order to deliver the f services that they're required to do. So you can't look to government. I mean, we've, we've proven it. The, the, uh, the, the government uh, salary bill has ballooned over the last 20-odd years, mm. and it's unsustainable. We've got to take people that... Uh, that we've, we've got, I think we've got to move the mindset from, I need to go and get myself a comfortable job in a large organisation, whether it's government or private or public or whatever it is, and I'm going to actually go out there and make something of myself, and I'm going to start employing people. Uh, because, um, you know, the Clem Sunters of the world, the concept of... of, of taking the entrepreneur and using the entrepreneur to actually grow the economy. Mm. We, need, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more support for the entrepreneurs. We need more cash for entrepreneurs because in the final analysis, they're the guys that actually start the economy. They, you, know, you might start with yourself and a mate in a garage somewhere, and who knows, after 20 years of hard work, you may have a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. uh, and the journey is not easy. Uh, it's fraught with problems. It's fraught with uh, issues every day of your life. You know, you wake up having to solve problems all, all day long. Uh, in fact, that's part of what uh, what running a business is all about. You know, the, the title of MD really means make decisions. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a decision-making process, and, and you're making decisions on behalf of the business, on behalf of yourself, on behalf of all your employees, your customers, yeah. your suppliers, and that all day long and every day long. But yes, I, I, I think we really, need, uh, we really need to pay attention to this. 
uh, because in my world, I think it is part of the solution for South Africa today. And the fact that you're doing what you're doing at the moment, that we're talking about entrepreneurship, contributes to that process. We really need more of it, and uh, and we, we've got to grow the economy, and we can't grow the economy and sit around, first of all, and think the government's going to do it for us, or any third party's going to do it for us. If you've got a great idea out there and you're thinking about doing it, well, <laughs> don't think too much, just do. Yeah. Because the reality is that's another another th- uh, concept that I've learned through this process. I can justify not doing anything very easily. If there's an opportunity that comes up and I look at it and I analytically uh, uh, do the pros and cons list <laughs> like we mostly do on most things in yeah. life, uh, almost 99 out of 100 times I can justify why I don't want to do it. Because it's always easier to look to... Um, uh, to look to the negative side of things. But the reality is, if you think that you that it makes sense, if your character works with that particular business model, if you think there's a market out there, then go and do it. Um, but of course, the, the truth and reality of building a business 27 years into it and building it in a market that has changed and evolved so many times. And one such, I suppose, evolution has been one that nobody could have seen coming, which was COVID. Mm. Um, I think it's about this time last year. Yep. We're all being told you're probably going to stay home for a couple of months. Yeah. Now, your business is a bricks and mortar business, understanding that obviously you're in the franchise model. Um, what, what has been the impact of COVID in such a tactile business? And what have been some of the things that you've had to do to pivot out of um, those challenges? So, yes, none of us uh, foresaw this to happen. Uh, and, uh, and this year in the last 12 months has been, uh, has been difficult, if not the most difficult, uh, navigating because we're we're kind of building the ship at the same time as sailing it, mm-hmm. uh, you know. There's particularly in franchising. I'm, I'm talking about that pr- proven recipe, the intellectual property. There isn't. There wasn't. I don't think intellectual property for anybody to navigate uh, a, a pandemic uh, similar to this. But maybe let me just reverse back a couple of years and, and contextualize this. So, um, for the vast majority of the time that we were around, we outsourced our IT to third parties. We had very rudimentary systems in place uh, that were kind of islands per store. Um, and it, probably going back about seven or eight years ago, we realized with the advent of digitization, with the World Wide Web, with cell phones and all the technology converging, that if we didn't control the de- our own destiny, our own IT destiny, we were probably, <laughs> in the final analysis, may not have a business. Mm. So we took the big decision at that point in time to in-house uh, capacity, um, and we did so. Uh, and when I say it's a big decision, the reality is that we're franchise specialists. We weren't IT specialists. Um, but we could see this thing coming, and we needed some control in the process. Uh, and uh, if you've been involved in IT at all, uh, the joke and project manager of the IT is that it always costs twice the price and always takes twice as long. <laughs> Well, I wish it was just twice the price and I wish it was just twice as long because building capacity in, a, in an industry like this, although we still fundamentally do exactly what we did 20 years ago, we bolted a couple of things on, we buy and sell second-hand kit. Mm-hmm. But it's become extremely sophisticated. So um, long story short, uh, we now have our own CIO. Uh, we have uh, upwards of uh, anywhere between five and ten full-time coders on board. We've got over a thousand PCs in a central database system uh, run on the Microsoft stack in the cloud, the whole shooting match. 
Uh, we've just peaked over 800,000 customers on our database. And should KG want to go and do uh, uh, any transaction with any cash converter store in South Africa, you're, uh, you've, you've, uh, you've, identified on the database and we can see your shopping patterns and we can service you better so so that whole process was underway and uh, effectively we were we we were on the journey but the reality with covid was that so one of the one of the things that we needed one of the foundations that we needed to get that technology in place is wide area network comms between ourselves and all of our stores so that was in place when covid hit um but what happened with COVID was that we were all locked up at home uh, and and we had close to 100 franchisees on the f- 27th of March sitting at home wondering what's going to happen with their business. Uh, some of them were our first franchisees still with us, so some of them were 27 years in the business and some we'd opened two and a half months prior to lockdown. So, so from an exco point of view, our job was really to look after the the, the minds of those franchisees. So we instantaneously went into a distributed work-from-home manner where we started franchise meetings with our franchisees over the digital platform on a weekly basis. Uh, and the context behind that is that prior to COVID, we'd probably meet three or four times a year face-to-face in different regions, and I take my whole Exco as an example. We do two meetings in, in Johannesburg because the network is quite big here. We can put everybody in one room, mm-hmm. and then we go down to Cape Town, and then we go correct on to Durban. And so a franchise meeting traditionally would last uh, from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and it would take a week to get eight guys around the country to deliver the same message. What COVID, the benefit of the COVID has brought to us is that we were able to see all the a hundred of those guys at one shot mm. effectively from our homes. So when we started out, we were meeting on a weekly basis. What's happening? How's it going? Uh, particularly with uh, with the uh, compliance side of things, what were the laws coming out? When were we going to open? I think when we went into lockdown on the 27th of March, we were thinking at that stage it was only going to be three weeks. And then it got pushed to the end of April. And... and Part of what we do as franchisors is try and understand the compliance side of things, in other words, the laws. So now we've got the Disaster Management Act, which we, which nobody knew anything about when we started. But uh, my partners were into those, uh, uh, those acts as they were promulgated and all the re- regulations were coming out with the relationship with our lawyers around the country as well. And we were, again sailing while we were building this boat <laughs> because uh, one day the register the regulations were saying one thing and then three days later there were a new set of regulations and a new set of rules uh, we were able to open on the first of may albeit with one hand tied behind our back and all that type of stuff and then never get through the process so COVID has has we could have done without it that's the, the, the overall comment but what it has done is a couple of benefits have come out of it. It's, it's sped up digitization in our business and I think in most businesses around the world. You're absolutely right. Our business is very tactile. We don't think that we're going to go from bricks and mortar to only digital. There'll be an omni-channel strategy over here. I'm sure you saw that meme coming around uh, when, when we were sometime in deep into COVID last year where 
who who di- who drove the digitization of your business? Was it the CEO, the CIO, the CFO, or COVID? It was definitely in our, our world, COVID. Uh, I think we all know the answer to that. Whether we like the answer or not is a different thing. It, it drove. We were on the journey, but it but it sped us uh, to deliver faster. So as another example, um, we were looking to bring a web shop to to uh, to the model during the course of this year, 2021, and as a consequence of COVID, we we uh, put it live last year. So we were able to, on top of the platform, and because we had the capacity from an IT point of view now, from the time we made the decision to the time we launched that web shop was three weeks, which I think must be a record in anybody's uh, any, anybody's life. Yeah, so sure. now we have the ability to sell our product in bricks and mortar as well as sell our product fully enabled web shop where you can go and search for whatever you're looking for, buy it online, pay for it online, courier will arrive at the uh, franchisee store tomorrow, pick it up and deliver it to you the next day. So that was on the journey, but it's just been sped up as a consequence of COVID. With a huge learning curve, I suspect. Massive, massive. And in fact, what I, what I think as well, particularly from a head office point of view, we've put a lot of pressure on our staff to deliver more quicker. Uh, we've probably similar to many people's experience, I set up a home office and uh, and now I no longer need to, or during the course of COVID, I no longer need, needed to drive to work. So that's two hours in a day that I've saved. And I'm in fact at my desk and operational and working an additional two hours a day. Uh, and sometimes you, you you raise your head and it's kind of dark out there and, you, and you're still at your, at, your, at your desk. And I think that has permeated through, I know that's permeated through our organization. Uh, we. I said to the guys at the end of last year at our year and function, you know what we did last year was close to a miracle. We halved your salary and you pr- and you produced double the output. We halved your salary and we asked you to work harder, uh, and uh, and and we've delivered quite amazing things. We're uh, we're we're very excited about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, we wish COVID to be out of the way, and hopefully, we'll get the health issues sorted shortly. Uh, but it's about rebuilding livelihoods, you know, all around the world. If one still has a business model, uh, your balance sheet is weaker than it was before you started the process. Because yes, we halved uh, salaries and, and, and the like over a relatively short period of time, thank goodness. Um, but the reality is that we were paying rental to landlords, uh, expenses continued, the income reduced to almost, well, it reduced to nothing in April of last year. Uh, and then it takes time to rebuild businesses. So, so we, we sit with a situation in just about every business besides those businesses that, are, that have really uh, grown through, uh, through, through as a consequence. Their, their, their growth has sped up as a consequence of COVID as you know, the, the, the digital shopping businesses and the like. Um, but but if, you, if you've still got a business after COVID, your balance sheet, generally speaking, is weaker. Uh, personal balance sheets are weaker. Uh, and we've got to get back into into get spinning this economy and getting livelihoods going again, getting businesses going again, and re-employing those million and a half people that have uh, that have lost their jobs. Lost their jobs yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a significant challenge in the country, clearly in the world anyway. But I think it's an opportunity for us to work together and get this job done now. I was getting ready to wrap, but you, you brought up something very very important, which is sort of the human element um, in in the business. With the challenges that you faced during COVID, and I suspect um, over 27 years there have been different other challenges that you've faced, what do you think, what value, perhaps should I be asking, 
has been the, 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 the human element in the business and also how have you kept um, the people that work at Cash Converters, how have you um, sort of kept them in the business and what do you think keeps them in the business, especially, you know, when, when, when the wolves are, <laughs> are out and about, um, they seem to have rallied and I'm curious as to yeah. what, what do you think that magic I think brings about that magic? The glue that holds it together is the value set mm. and the culture. So we, 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 you know, those five words I gave you earlier are not just words in our, in our world. They, they actually, we live the culture. Yeah. So we think that, uh, that respect is important in our world and we should respect our franchisees. We respect our staff as an example. Um, and we deal with people as we would like to be dealt with. So, so when we went into lockdown, our mindset as a head office, as a franchisor was every one of our franchisees must be really worried about this. We're really worried about it. So how do we help them through this process mm. on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, on just a support level? So, I mean, I think my uh, cell phone bill tripled during the course of lockdown because I was consciously wishing to talk to every person I could talk to in my organization all the way through the process. Um, and that's really just the, the human side of things. Mm. You know, you, you may perceive this to be a relatively large business, but it's made up of a clump of relatively small businesses and the guy who runs the store in uh, Newcastle has different pressures than the guy that runs the store in Arbor Crossing in, in Durban mm. um, and as a franchisor you've got to take that into account as I said as well you know we've got chaps who've been with us for 25 years and others who've just recently joined us the guys who've been with us for 25 years have made lots and lots of money they've got big balance sheets they could spend another two years with their doors closed they'd still survive mm. but the guy who's just started three months ago He's just invested the life savings, and I think he's bonded his house. His yeah. life savings are in there. He's got a fifty percent loan from the bank. Um, I think the banks in general have handled this process really, really well. The guys that we've been dealing with, which is great, um, and and seeing the the importance of ensuring the business is still there post COVID, uh, uh, you know, and to help the the, the, the individual lenders from their perspective and now franchisees. So each and every individual has had different pressure to deal with. And of course, you've also got your kids if, you're, uh, if you've got kids at home and if they're, depending on what age they are, there are different pressures associated with this. So it's been, a, it's, it's been a, a, a challenging time, but I think one that has resulted in us being a lot stronger coming out of this. So they always joke that you can't make a decent sailor by sailing in a harbour. You've got to get out there. <laughs> got to get out into the rough seas. <laughs> and experience the rough seas. So I think we've we've come out of this, we've come out of it leaner. We, we can actually deliver more with less resource. And we've come out of it with more effective as well and more opportunity, I think. Wanting to <laughs> I love it. This is... Yeah. There we go. <laughs> if you're listening and not watching, yeah. nothing happened. <laughs> But anyway, I guess it's, it's also a sign that we should start to wrap our conversation. Um, you know, when we set up this this discussion, it was initially around um, sort of the options that are out there for the startup entrepreneur mm. uh, in terms of financing. What can you do um, practically, very, very practically to, to raise capital as you're building? And one of the things that you did mention earlier one was make sure that the model itself is profitable yeah. and build your business yes. from your customer. Um, as we wrap two, three pieces of advice for that guy who's sitting there, he's just started, he's six months or she's six months into this business or is about to start this business journey and is wondering how they're going to fuel that, knowing that banks, or at least the traditional um, sort of um, avenues of raising capital aren't necessarily an option for him at that point. What would you advise? And does cash converters play a role in that? Or the micro lending space, can it fit yeah. fill that gap? So um, first of all, 
you you need to be tenacious because because vast majority of people that are going to that you're going to approach are going to say no, and and I would argue that uh, you just got to find the person that's going to say yes. So so tenacious to start with. Um, in 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 uh, a couple of tips that may be available at this stage of the game, if you look towards government funding, so organisations like CIFA, etc. Uh, if you qualify for that uh, from an application point of view, that may well be an avenue. Um, family and friends. So going to beg, borrow and steal from family and friends is particularly dependent on where you are in the in the agent stage of the build-out of sure. your business. So right at the front end, where you've really got nothing to sell to a third party, why would anybody want to, to lend you money mm. if you don't really have a business? Uh, sometimes you have to rely on that type of environment. I mean, when I started the business... Uh, I had a little bit of money, but not much, but I effectively moved back in with my folks. I was unmarried at that point in time, and I, I needed to reduce my personal expenses to almost nothing. So if you need to do something like that, then then maybe that's a, an avenue. I'll tell you another funny story of a, uh, originally in the early days, in the late 90s, uh, in Pretoria, uh, one of our uh, early franchisees moved his him and his wife and his daughter into their store. Oh. Sold their house. It was a it was a double story store, and they turned the top area into a flat basically, and so he reduced his his living expenses to almost nothing. That was an idea that he had. In today's world, you've uh, you've got uh, concepts like crowdfunding. Mm. You know, you might want to might might want to look at that. Um, so, family and friends. I'm just I've got some cheat sheets over here. Clearly, applying for a loan at a bank is is a uh, is an alternative. Um, and and we you know if you can find the right guy can put the business plan together properly and do have something that is tangible bearing in mind that you've put some money into it as well uh, banks are, are very keen to ensure that you've put money in and to some degree these days they're also recognizing the importance of the jockey so if they believe that you're the guy that can make that business model work then you may well be able to get a foot in the door and then again, I say, make sure that your business model is profitable because that's that internal growth is really very powerful. Uh, it costs you nothing because you've made the profit already, so mm. you don't have to go out and raise the cash and you're not paying interest on it or whatever it is and leave that money in the business uh, to allow you to grow. But I think it goes hand in hand with what you, you, you mentioned earlier, which is sort of entrepreneurial discipline, the willingness yes. to forego comfort yes. in the immediate yes. and, and really build the entity and build the asset. That's a really important aspect, uh, particularly if you're coming from an environment where you're maybe used to a comfortable paycheck at the end of every month and you're thinking about going into your own business. Recognize that, that the likelihood is that your lifestyle uh, is going to reduce or become, let's call it worse, in the short term mm. while you focus on on planting this tree and watering it properly and fertilizing it properly, it's almost the picture that I have in mind. It's like a hockey stick. So you, your, your lifestyle is going to reduce to some degree until you can get this business going and getting it over the, the, the level where you started. The, the, the departure point being that if you go down this route, the likelihood is that you're going to end up with a lifestyle better than if you stay where you, where you are at the moment. But of course, there's risk. There's a price. There's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a price. And there's a short-term <laughs> price. Absolutely. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we play a little game with all our guests, so uh, I don't know if they told you that. No. Brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but in the last 30 seconds, I'm just going to throw some words that you first sure. thought that comes to mind. Is that mm -hmm. okay? Okay. So 30 seconds. The clock is running. All good. Life is? Tough. Entrepreneurship is? Exciting. 
at the end I want to have built something of value biggest lesson so far people are important <laughs> you stopped me you're going through them quite fast actually <laughs> I thought there was a prize but I could answer as many <laughs> questions as possible. Unfortunately, there's no prize. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but, but, but again, as we wrap, thank you yeah. so, so much for, for spending time. I think just as an entrepreneur myself, I've gained so much from this conversation and I look forward to having you back um, maybe a couple of months from now, a couple of years from now to, to further discuss what the journey has been. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where you are at that yeah. point. Um, understanding that, you know, at some point you, you, you will step away from business and, you know, just retire and enjoy yes. your life. Not that you're not enjoying yeah. it now. Um, what would you want your legacy in the business environment to be, but also on a, maybe on a micro level, the family unit and the family that is cash converters? How do you want to be remembered in, in that context? Possibly as the founder of uh, cash converters in, in Southern Africa. And in fact, we're starting a, a journey of building. We've just recently secured the license for, sub, for uh, uh, pretty much the whole of Africa. And uh, I'll be extracting myself out of the day-to-day -day side of things here in Southern Africa, looking after the building in, in, uh, in, in, in the balance of Africa, basically. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, the excitement continues. The legacy, I think, maybe as the founder of uh, Cash Converters in Africa, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good one to go with. <laughs> that's a good one to go with. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Platform 63. My name is KG. We'll see you on the next one. And don't forget to subscribe, to share, to comment, because you keep the conversation going. And all the best in your entrepreneurial journey. And we hope this has been of value.